chapter 1. It's on page 909 of your pew Bible. There's a, or in front of you, you'll see uh, below the, the seat before you a blue uh, pew Bible. Again, you don't have to, but you're welcome to follow along. Again, it's page 909. It's Acts chapter 1. And I'll be reading the first 14 verses. And as we turn there, if you would, just grab your bulletin real quick. We're going to read the summons to the Word, a summons that reminds us of the sobriety, the importance uh, with which we uh, come to God's word. It's taken from Psalm 119. We read the, there we read these words. I will never forget your commands. They make me wiser than my enemies. Your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light for my path. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, in these moments that followed, would we indeed soak in your word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes that see? Would you give us hearts that are willing to grow? to change, to be challenged, to be championed, to be loved, to be instructed, to be guided. Indeed, Father, we have um, need of your wisdom. Father, the world is a dark place, and we need your word as a lamp. So, Father, please make it a light for our path. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his, after his suffering with many, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them, in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, 
James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, were with, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. The word of the Lord. Let me begin uh, this morning by sharing with you a story from last Sunday. Uh, it was a, happened in a small town in British Columbia. A man, uh, I think he was in his, I want to say his late 70s, was um, at a church. Uh, the, the Palm Sunday service had, I believe, started, and a 25-year-old man uh, walked into the church and shot him, murdered him right there. Uh, in fact, shot another man as well, who uh, the first man uh, died from the wounds. The second man was, uh, I think they were able to, to save him, and the, the congregants, you can imagine just the, the fear, uh, the uh, anxiety, the, just the sense of uh, trauma. They, uh, were, some of them were able to manage to actually wrestle him down, hold him down until authorities came. And the, man who sh- uh, the young man who shot the older man was uh, identified as a 25-year-old, and he was actually known to the old man because he was his foster son. And uh, we don't know the motives uh, of why he did this, but this man, his name was um, Gord, Gord Parmenter. He and his wife had spent their lives being foster parents. Only to have his end in this tragedy. In fact, they had, just apparently some weeks or so earlier, they had actually uh, had this young man, um, they removed him from their home because of his behavior, his violent actions, behavior, they said, you can no longer stay here. And then in the time that followed, obviously there's gathering anger in this man's heart. And uh, for reasons we don't know, uh, last Sunday um, murdered um, his foster father. You may think about that and think, wow, isn't that just amazing? What, isn't that just what happens when we try to help others? Isn't that what happens when we try to give? So often it just is, doesn't work out. Maybe not in that dramatic of a way. But you wonder, is it, is it really worth it? Was it really worth it? Well, another foster son of theirs, uh, when he heard about it, was absolutely heartbroken. He wrote these words. He wrote a letter, a public letter. It said, Gord and Peggy were more than foster parents. They treated me like their own kin. He went on to say, Gordon was driven, Gordon was driven by his faith, and helping people was his way of serving God. And the young man goes on to say, I was a very complex case, and complexity is what Gordon specialized in. He helped me become who I am today, and always with a laugh. The the young man went on to speak in a very moving letter of how at key moments in his life, this man Gordon had made all the difference in the world. I think in some ways this story is, I love this story because it speaks of what I would call quietly practicing resurrection. What do I mean by that? Quietly practicing resurrection. It's actually, the phrase practice resurrection is actually from an old Puritan pastor. I want to say 17th century. George Herbert was his name. 
And this idea of practicing resurrection, is, as we're going to use it today, is the idea of living your life in a way where all around you or many places around us, we see, if we're honest, we see situations that are beyond hope. We walk into situations, scenarios at work, in classrooms, in families, in marriages, where we look and we shake our heads and say, you know what? This is it's dead. It's dead. I mean, if we're honest, if we're realistic, there's really no hope here. And I think in some ways that picture of a, of a, of a, of, of a couple choosing to welcome in you know, a teenage boy. Who knows what that teenage boy had seen in his life, right? In fact, if I remember right in this story, um, the story, the foster son who wrote the letter said that the Parmenters took him and several other foster children in over the years because Gord Parmenter had volunteered to be the emergency placement home in their region. That is to say, the, the, the author writes, this meant that he would welcome kids into his home who had nowhere else to go. In other words, the parmenters would get the foster children that no one else wanted. What leads a person to invest in hardened, angry teens? What leads someone to invest not only in, in a, a person or in a situation that seems hopeless, but in countless other larger, like you think of cultural issues. We think of just the things that, that are tearing our culture apart even today. In fact, we think of the issues of racism in our culture. We should think issues of class. And, and, and it's, not, you, it's not hard to find on the news, is it? It's not hard to find at all this notion of the polarizing of America. The ways in which, again and again, we, we are just seems to be coming apart, as one author says, coming apart at the seams. In fact, let me just quote two voices that you may or may not be familiar with, but there are voices out there in the intelligentsia and in the, in the wider, meeting, wider media. Let me uh, read to you, for example, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates writes for the Atlantic. Um, he's got a number of books, um, Afro-American um, journalist, a really insightful, amazing pen. Let me just write, uh, he writes this beautiful book to his son called Between the World and Me, and he writes this, unfit, he writes about his childhood and his childhood friends, unfit for the schools, and in good measure, wanting to be unfit for them. And lacking the savvy I needed to master the streets, I felt there could be no escape for me, or honestly, for anyone else. And then he goes on to tell about how he would obtain alcohol. He and his friends would obtain alcohol illegally. He says, then we would walk, quote, we would walk to the house of someone whose mother worked that night. We would play music and we'd drink to our youth. We could not get out. The ground we walked was tripwired. The air we breathed was toxic. The water stunted our growth. We could not get out. So here's this man portraying this picture of living, of living in a context of despair. We could not get out. That's Coates. Let me give you another voice, Charles Murray. Charles Murray is a Harvard-trained political scientist. He wrote a book called Coming Apart, 
white America. And these, these two men represent opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, whether it's Coates or Murray. Murray writes this, our nation is coming apart at the seams, at the seams of class. And he goes on to document how the two classes, the upper class, they were 5 or 10%, and the lower 15 to 25%, how they are continuing culturally to move further and further apart from each other in, area, in four main areas, an area of marriage and family, where absentee fathers and non-marital births separate these two cultures, these two classes, where work and industriousness, industriousness measured in male labor force participation, all of those things are just, again, dividing our country. He goes on to speak of community engagement in terms of crime rates and, and, and in prison time. He speaks also of faith and religiosity and speaking of affiliation, uh, a religious affiliation and church attendance. And he speaks of how these two aspects, these two polar opposites of our culture have almost nothing in common. So on the one hand, you've got Coates, and on the other hand, you've got Murray. Whether it's color, whether it's class, there's this sense in which our nation is coming apart. We are a deeply divided culture. And it makes us ask the question, is it worth it? I mean, is it really worth it to invest? As we look around us and we think, you know, there's just, isn't it safer? Isn't it wiser? Isn't it better just to look after yourself? Right? To save up that 401k, to get your house, get your mortgage covered, you know, simply to live your life and to, and to remain insulated, isolated, doing your thing, taking care of your own well, Jesus calls us to something radically different. He says that in this very polarized world that we have, he calls us to practice resurrection. To the very, the very thing that Gord and his wife did, to actually go into context, into situations where we cannot possibly see how any good can come from this. And to give ourselves, to invest ourselves in ways that are simply unreasonable and irrational. You know, that is how the movements of our time, the last hundred years, the ones that really stand out to us. We think of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Listen to this. This is David Chappell. He's a professor of the, out of the University of Oklahoma. He, he's written one of the, probably the four uh, most uh, highly esteemed, critically acclaimed books on the civil rights movement. Listen to this. He says, the black movement's nonviolent soldiers were driven not by modern liberal faith and human reason, but listen to this, but by older, seemingly more durable prejudices and superstitions that were rooted in Christian and Jewish myth. Isn't that amazing? He says, you know, you want to you know what really drove MLK? You want to understand who Fannie Lou Hamer was? You want to know who the, who the black soldiers, the soldiers of the black movement were? Do you want to know what motivated them? The myths of the Jewish and Christian faiths. The legends of the Old Testament. See, of course, he's writing from a non-Christian perspective. And he's, admi he's admitting, though, that what fueled the black movement wasn't some just you know, European Enlightenment notion. It was actually rooted in the, 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 actually it's not even the New Testament, the Hebrew prophets. 
He goes on the right here. He says, specifically, they drew from a prophetic tradition that runs from David and Isaiah in the Old Testament through Augustine and Martin Luther to Niebuhr in the 20th century. And listen to this. This is so awesome. Like the Hebrew prophets of old, these thinkers of the black movement believed that they could not expect that the world and its institutions would improve. But nor could they be passive bystanders. They had to stand apart from society and insult it with skepticism about its pretensions to justice and truth. They had to instigate catastrophic changes in the minds of whoever would listen. And they accepted that only a few outcasts might actually listen. See, when you've got, you've got Jim Crow South all around you, when there is segregation everywhere you look and you know there is no hope of change, where do you go? When you're surrounded by a self-righteous people who don't want to deal with, with anything, where do you go? You go to the Old Testament and you see what it's like to be a prophet. And it was there that they found the hope, the courage to practice Resurrection. So the question I want to ask this morning, very just won't take long, is how can we overcome all that divides us? And Jesus here, he calls us to practice resurrection. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse one, Acts, Acts chapter one, verse one. This is, is this, the book of Acts is actually sort of volume two, if you will, of a two-part series written by Luke. Luke's, uh, Luke wrote the gospel that we know, the gospel of Luke, and here he's writing this second installment the book of Acts. So he says in the first book, and he's writing to a particular person, a benefactor, most likely, named, named Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's saying, actually, Jesus is going to do more. And the rest of this book is about all that Jesus is doing, but he said, but what he's doing through his apostles. Well, what is it that Jesus began to do? Well, largely, you read the book of, you read the book of Luke, and you realize that Jesus, this is so amazing, See, I don't know, if I had been Jesus, do you know what I would have done? I don't mean to sound, I don't mean to sound uh, you know, um, sac- sacrilegious at all, but if I had been Jesus, I would have hung with the influencers. If I wanted to change things, I would have you know, hung with Herod. I would have gone to the pub with Pilate. I would have been you know, trying to find the important people and influence them and get to know them. Do you know what Jesus does? Listen to what Jesus does. Turn with me. You've got your Bible. Turn to the left. Turn to Luke's Gospel, to, ch- to chapter 6. This is amazing here. This is, so, this is page 862. Luke 6, page 862. Look what Jesus does here. This is page 862. It's, on, on, it's chapter 6, verse 12. It says, In these days he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night... He continued in prayer to God. Now think about that. This is, this is on a mountain. This is Jesus all night in prayer. Okay, that's something pretty significant must be happening, right? There's no other time that we know of that Jesus spent the night in prayer. So what's he doing? Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And he gives the list there. Simon, whom he called Peter and Andrew and his brother and James and John and Philip. He goes, on, he goes through the whole list here. 
And so now if you turn back to Acts chapter 1, the, the passage I read actually ends with the description of those same guys. Right? So they, they, they behold Jesus going back into heaven. And, and you look at verse, uh, verse, um, chapter, Acts chapter 1, verse 13. It says, And when they entered, they went up to the upper room, and there they were, there where they were staying. And then he lists them, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, all the same, 12 except for one, Judas Iscariot. So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus begin to do? How does Jesus plan to take over the world? How did he plan to renew all things? He picked 12 people. I want to take a few minutes to talk about each of those 12 people because let me tell you, they were pretty pathetic. Jesus practiced resurrection. First, of course, is Peter. Most of you know Peter. Originally, his name was Simon Right, meaning we don't really quite know what the, the meaning of Simon was. Peter, of course, means rock, right? He was from a small town, the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman. Jesus again called him Peter, or in Aramaic, Cephas, and he's the guy. Peter's the guy who was the most vocal, and, and he was the guy who loved to correct Jesus. Jesus would say something like, "I'm going to Jerusalem to die." He's like, "Nah, you're good." Jesus would say, all of you are going to fall away on account of me. He's like, no, I'll go to prison and death with you, no problem. Peter loved to correct Jesus. See, Peter was the guy who would say the, thing, the dumb thing that you're thinking, but he would say it. <laughs> that was Peter. We call Peter here, Peter the self-confident, or Peter the certain. So we're going to call Peter this morning. Peter the certain, he was very American. Oh, I got this. I can do this. So Peter was probably Jewish, he's probably American now, because he knew that he could do it. Peter the certain, Peter the self-confident. In fact, he was so confident that on the night that he followed Jesus, after all the, all, all the rest of his followers had, had abandoned him and left him, as he followed them to, the, uh, to the, the courts of the high priest, he got there, having said, I will go to prison and death. And what does, he do? what does Peter the rock do? He denies Jesus three times. I do not know the man calling down curses upon. That's Peter. All right. Andrew, Peter's brother. We actually don't know much about Andrew. There's James and John. We'll consider them together. James and John. So Peter is Peter the certain. James and John are, are what we call, call James and John the self-righteous. Those of you who know been going through Luke, we know there's a passage in Luke where um, Jesus is traveling on his final journey down to Jerusalem, and they travel through a Samaritan town, and the Samaritans will want Jesus there. And you know what James and John do? They're like, hey, Jesus, I got a great idea. Why don't we call down fire on them? That'll be great. And Jesus shakes his head, rebukes them, and they move on. See, James and John, are, they're ready to crit criticize. They're ready to critique. They are ready to be self-righteous. They are there to just simply let everyone know how wrong they are. In fact, later on, it's James and John who actually ask Jesus, saying, hey, Jesus, do you mind if in your kingdom we sit at your right and your left hand? Wouldn't that be great? All right, so we got, we got Peter the servant, we got James and John the self-righteous, right? We got Philip, we're going to call Philip the slow. There's this great passage, I won't take the time to go there. In John 14, it's the upper room, Jesus is about to die on the cross. He says this, if you have seen the Father, you have seen me. And then Philip says, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Jesus is like, I just said if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
So this is Jesus practicing resurrection. This is Jesus investing in hopeless people. Peter, the certain, the self-confident, right? James and John, the self-righteous. Uh, Philip, the slow. Now we're going to come to, actually, where's Matthew? We know, I mean, there's Bartholomew. We know absolutely nothing about Bartholomew. You know, we don't know why. I mean, Matthew, there's Matthew. We're going to call Matthew the sellout. You know why Matthew was a sellout? He was a tax collector. That's what he did. You know, it, um, uh, Matthew's motto was, uh, was, sim- was very simple. If you can't beat him, join him. He said, Rome's here. They're here to stay. We might as well make some money off it. And so he became a tax collector. Rome said, gathered 6%, 10%, whatever. And whatever you, whatever you want to add to that, you can. And you can make money. So, so Matthew would add a lot. Ah, why? If the tax is 6%, I'll collect 9%. And I'll make bank off my fellow Jews, right? So he was, you know, we might compare, you know, you know, Matthew was sort of the equivalent in some ways of the greedy, you know, the greedy corporate CEO or something like that. You, you, pick, you pick your modern-day equivalent. But, Pe- but, but, excuse me, but Matthew's the sellout. We've got Peter, the self-confident, Peter the certain. We've got James and John, the self-righteous. We've got Philip, the slow. And now we've got Matthew, the sellout. Now it gets even better than after this. We've got Thomas. You know who Thomas is, right? What did Thomas go down in history for? You can look in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's called a doubting Thomas, right? It's actually a word, actually a word in the dictionary. I mean, this is that, oh, you're a doubting Thomas. That's what Thomas is known for. So we have Thomas the skeptic. And after, after Thomas the skeptic, we've got James, I'm sorry, we've got Simon. And Simon's actually called Simon the Zealot. And you know why he was called Simon the Zealot? We don't know this for sure, but chances are he was part of a movement. Okay, a movement that was a very violent movement. That basically, you, this is not alt-right. This is worse than alt-right. This is basically saying the kingdom of God will only come one way, and it's through violence. He was part of a group of men called the, called the Zikara'i. Zikara'i, which means dagger, dagger men. These guys are hitmen. Jesus basically chose a hitman to be one of his 12 disciples. Now, how, how I mean, talk about a bad PR move right? What is Jesus thinking? He's practicing resurrection. He's investing in sitting down. Now, and stop, now stop, think about this for a second. You've got Matthew over here who's a tax collector who works for Rome. And over here you've got Simon the zealot who wants to see Rome die, burn. How well do you think the two of them got along? Imagine those spirited political conversations. Right? I mean, this, is, this makes the 2016 presidential election look like nothing. I think Rome's great. I think Rome should burn. Right? So, so, but Jesus is here. Listen to this. this is so, Jesus is bringing together liberal and conservative, progressive and conservative. He's bringing together Republican and Democrat. He's bringing together persons from just who should never be talking to each other. People who would long ago have defriend, was it defriend? Is it the word you use? Would unfriend, unfriend them on Facebook. So you've got Peter, the self-confident, or Peter the certain, the American. You've got James and John, the self-righteous. You've got Philip the slow. You've got Matthew the sellout. You've got Thomas the skeptic, and finally you've got Simon the zealot, and you've got a few others. I'm going to get the time. But what's important to see, look up here back in chapters, in, in Acts here. Look at this. This is so amazing. Not only, though, do we have the 11, and I'm not going to take time to talk about Judas Iscariot because you know the story of Judas Iscariot. 
But we see here, not only in this passage, not only are there the apostles and these hopeless cases, but listen to this. This is so, I mean no disrespect here, but look at verse uh, 14. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Well, who are the women? Well, actually, if you don't know this, again, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go return back to Luke in the same thing. We, in a couple, couple chapters later, after Jesus gathers the 12, we read in chapter 8 of Luke, this is so amazing to me. Listen to this. It doesn't get any better than this. Listen to this. Chapter, this is Luke chapter 8. This is page 864. We read this. Soon after, Jesus went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And it says, and, then the, and the 12 were with him. Okay, we know who the 12 are now. Uh, these, these, these incredibly, these persons with incredible potential, right? And these, the 12 were with him, two, verse 2. And also some women. Well, listen, to the, listen to the description of these women. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Well, that sounds promising, right? And it lists them. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. So first one is, I had seven demons come out of her. Okay. The second one, has got connections to Herod's to Herod, who like wanted to kill Jesus. And of course, the name Mary Magdalene. Some of you should know that, right? Now think about that. If there, if you were ever wanting a witness, a reliable witness for the resurrection, would you ever choose Mary? One, because in the ancient world, tragically wrongly, in the Greco-Roman world, women were not a credible witness in a court of law. And she's had some issues, right? And yet God chooses her to be one of the first to witness the resurrected Lord. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you were ever going to make this stuff up, you wouldn't do it this badly. You just wouldn't. I know, let's make it up so a woman with a demon possession, you know, is going to be the first witness to Jesus, his resurrection. No. It's so bad because maybe that's actually how it happened. But understand here, so you have these, ele- these 11, you know, these 11 apostles, then you have the women, and then after that, notice it says, it says and the, together with the women, this is back in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I'm not going to take the time, but I want you to, if you know the gospel stories, you know that Jesus was overwhelmingly rejected by his whole family. Of course, Mary didn't fully reject him, but there were some times where she was like, who, what is going on? But his, his brothers especially completely rejected him during his life. Now, what I want you to see today, very simply, that in this very polarizing time, Jesus calls us to practice resurrection. And there's something else, just let me, from the process to practice resurrection, and this is the, the, with two qualifications here. These are important. First, we practice resurrection not knowing the plan. Look back here, and I think it's in verse 7 here, or verse 6. Sorry, verse 6. So when, they, when, they had come, when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? 
We want to know the plan. What's, how's this all going to work out? Give us the details. What, 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 now, now that you're raised from the dead, that's awesome. So when are we taking over? And what does Jesus say? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, we're to practice resurrection not knowing the plan. I hate that. I always want to know the plan. I want to have it all figured out. I want to go into people's lives knowing exactly what's going to happen. I want to be in control. Right? I want, I want, I want, there to be, I want it to be clean and neat and organized. I can go in, go out, be done. No. That's not how it works. We practice resurrection not knowing the plan. But here's the thing. Jesus instead promises something much better. He says, you're not going to know the plan, but I will give you my power, and I will give you my presence. Look what he says here, verse, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I listen, you're not going to know the plan. You're not going to be in control. It's probably a good thing that you're not in control. You only mess things up. You go and you practice resurrection, and you know that I will be present, and I will be there with power. And so when we practice resurrection, we know that he is present, that he is powerful by his spirit as we enter into situations where it is beyond our ability, where we don't know the outcome, where it is okay to fail. I don't know about you, I hate failure. I love to be successful. I love to show everyone how successful I am. But Jesus doesn't promise that. He promises go practice resurrection among the hopeless, the hurting. And then so, not knowing the plan, we practice resurrection, and finally, we practice resurrection, not knowing the plan, but with the power, the promise of God's power and his presence, and therefore we do it with prayer. Look at verse 14 again. All these, these 11 apostles, right? Peter the certain Right, James and John, the self-righteous, Thomas, the skeptic, um, Philip, the slow, all these guys, they're all there with the women and Mary. And what are they doing? Oh, we got this figured out. We're going to take the world by storm. We're going to be tweeting, and we're going to be, we're going to all this media. It's going to be this great master plan. They realize that they don't have, they, they don't actually know anything. They realize that we don't know how to do this. And so we are going to practice resurrection with prayer. With prayer. That's how the world changes. That's how people's hearts change. That's how marriages are fixed. That's how, that's how people come to faith. That's how people go from having a hardened, cold heart to hearts of love and life. Is when God's people gather. And listen, it says, you see that in verse 14? It uses the word together. They prayed together. This is collective. This is us not just being by myself in my private prayer time, which is okay, that's good, that's wonderful. It is when God's people gather in small groups, when they gather as the people of God for evenings of prayer and praise, when they gather together on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday morning to pray. And they pray together and they begin to see God work in such beautiful ways. So let me ask you, where is their death around you? Where are their disastrous situations? Where are there situations where there are like all you know, those signs to stay out, toxic, right? Those signs, nuclear waste site. 
Where are those places that God has providentially put you in that every bone in your body you want to run from? And ask yourself, is it possible that he's calling me to practice resurrection? To actually live our lives in a way that is just out of our control, where we don't understand where it's going, but we're going to do it prayerfully. We're going to do it not knowing the plan. I'm not saying be foolish. I'm saying don't be in control. Let me close with this. Some of you, as you notice, as, as a church, we're reading a book. It's a beautiful book by Henri Nouwen. And it's called, he, was a wonderful, he was a wonderful man, Catholic priest, gay, just, just an incredible man. He has so much. This is a simple little book called In the Name of Jesus. And it is beautiful. I'm going to read. So, so, so he's, he was Dutch-born. He was a Catholic priest. And he, he was an incredibly successful professor. He taught at University of Notre Dame. He taught at Yale, and he taught at Harvard. I mean, all right, that's probably good. You know, that's enough, right? All right, so, and then one day, to everyone's astonishment, he left a very lucrative academic career and went to work at a community called the Larsh Communities. They're communities of disabled persons. They're all around the world. It's like 130, 140 or so, and he went to work at one of these and again, this book that we're reading together as a congregation in the name of Jesus describes his experience. And let me just give you a one excerpt from the book as a teaser here. Uh, Nowen writes, The first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally disabled persons was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the many useful things I had done until then in my life. Since nobody could read my books, the books could not impress anyone, and since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not provide a significant introduction. My considerable ecumenical experience proved even less valuable. When I offered some meat to one of the assistants during dinner, one of the disabled persons said to me, don't give him meat, he doesn't eat meat, he's a Presbyterian. <laughs> not being able to use any of the skills that I had proved so practical in the past, was a real source of anxiety. I was suddenly faced with my naked self, open for affirmations and rejections, hugs and punches, smiles and tears, all dependent simply on how I was perceived at any given moment. In a way, it seemed as though I was starting my life all over again. Relationships, connections, reputations can no longer be could no longer be counted on. This experience was, and, and listen to this, this experience was, and in many ways, is still the most important experience in my life. Because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self the self that can do things, the self that can show things, the self that can prove things and build things. And it forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love regardless of any accomplishments. I'm telling you all this because I am deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant. Isn't that awesome? and to stand in this world with nothing to offer, offer but his or her own vulnerable self. 
Listen, the reason at the end of the day that you and I are called to practice resurrection is so that we might lose our lives in order that we might find them. The reason any servant gives himself in the name of Jesus to practice resurrection in that hopeless situation, and I know I'm romanticizing it, and I know that, I do ministry, Believe me, it's hard. It hurts. Can you hear my wife and kids grumbling? But the reason we do this is because I will be blessed through it. So as much grumbling as I can, I can give you, I can tell you story after story after story where I have had front row seats to seeing lives changed. To seeing, the eye, to seeing the blind see, the deaf hear, to seeing marriages actually make it, to seeing people become something they never thought they could become. I have seen resurrection. What could be more beautiful? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the richness. We don't understand. There's so much we don't understand. Why all the death? Why all the disaster? Why all the pain? It doesn't make sense. I don't know, Father. I do not have the answer. And yet, Father, we know, we believe, we follow Jesus in believing that you are a God who is greater than death, who has overcome it, a God who indeed is able to bring life out of death, blessing out of curse, Peace out of conflict. Hope out of despair. Good, incredible good out of overwhelming evil. Father, there's no one like you. And in your name, Jesus, I pray that you would enable us to practice resurrection. Oh, Father, some here, Father, they are wondering, they have come, they are wondering, is this thing even real? Is all of this just a joke? Isn't it all just a sham? Father, I pray that indeed we as a community of faith would show love, would reveal that yes, in many ways we are a sham. But Father, that you indeed would move in our hearts to show real love, to show real humility, real peace to a world that is so polarized. So Father, please, would you bring all the wrong people to Good Shepherd? Would you bring the alt-right? Would you bring that far-left liberal? Would you bring, Father, every color Father, every kind, every class, Father, would you bring persons who have no idea who they are, the addicts, the greedy. Father, bring us all here, for none of us belong. And yet in your grace at the cross, all of us belong. Lord Jesus, we crown you with many crowns. You indeed are the Lord of life. And Father, we love that you have given us life, abundant life, eternal life, through the death and resurrection of your Son. And it is in his mighty and merciful name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand and sing together this beautiful hymn.